My name is Ben, if I haven't met you yet. I am one of the pastors here along with Bill. It's great to be with you all today. We are going to be in Exodus chapter 5 through chapter 7, verse 7, which, which sounds like a lot, but we will get through it together, I promise. Um, but before we dive into the text, uh, I'm just going to pray for us once more. Heavenly Father, we do praise your name as a good and gracious God who loves to redeem his people. You continue to rescue. As you rescued the Israelites from Egypt, you continue to rescue a people from their sins and into your kingdom. And so we rejoice in that reality. And we pray as we consider your word that we would have our eyes lifted up to the magnificent work that Christ has done on our behalf. And it's his, in his name that we pray. Amen. In 1976, uh, the Apple I computer was built by Steve Wozniak and Steve Jobs. A year later, the Apple II came out, and by 1980, Steve Jobs was worth $250 million, which is about $775 million in today's dollars. That seems like a lot. And if I just told you that, you would say to yourselves, well, yeah, I mean, that sounds about right. Apple's everywhere. It dominates everything. I have one on my wrist. I have one in my pocket. It's at home. It's everywhere. So they went from there and just, it was great. They took over the world. Apple's a huge company. What's your point? What you might not know is that in 1984, they released another computer called the Macintosh, and it tanked. It tanked bad. Uh, the IBM PC was better. Microsoft was coming up, and so it got so bad that Steve Jobs is forced out of the company, has to go somewhere else and start another company, which was also bad at building computers, and so they pivoted to software. And so today, we have a similar type of situation. Everything for the Israelites looks like it's lined up. We past couple of weeks, we talked about how the Lord saw the oppression of his people, he heard their cries, and he knew the pain that they were in. And he had a mission to redeem them out of slavery and take them to the promised land. And so last week we talked about Moses is going to be his agent to do that. Reluctant Moses, who doesn't want to go, says send somebody else, but ends up obeying anyway. And he gives him signs to show the Israelites so that they will believe him, and they do. And so we left off last week with Moses ready to go to Pharaoh, the Israelites behind him, they're going to go in, talk to Pharaoh, Israel gets set free, and then we're done, right? That's what we would expect. But that's not exactly what happens. We take some left turns. Some things happen on a different timeline than perhaps we would make it. And so as we walk through this text, there's some lessons for us to learn to observe, and to apply to our lives. But as we do that, there's just one kind of frame, one kind of lens that I want you all to remember as we walk through this text, and it's simply this. No matter how unexpected the Lord's timing is, his purposes can never be thwarted. No matter how unexpected the Lord's timing is, his purposes can never be thwarted. So let's dive in. We're, we're here, Moses is with the Israelites behind him, he's got Aaron on his side, he's about to go to Pharaoh and say, let my people go. Let's see what happens. Let's read chapter 5, verses 1 through 21. 
Afterward, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. Then they said, The God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go a three days' journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God, lest he fall upon us with pestilence or the sword. But the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people away from their work? Get back to your burdens. And Pharaoh said, Behold, the people of the land are now many, and you make them rest from their burdens. The same day Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters of the people and their foremen, You shall no longer give the people straw to make bricks, as in the past. Let them go and gather straw for themselves. But the number of bricks that they made in the past you shall impose on them. They shall by no means reduce it, for they are idle. Therefore they cry, let us go and offer sacrifice to our God. Let heavier work be laid on the men that they may labor at it, and pay no regard to lying words. So the taskmasters and the former of the people went out, and they said to the people, Thus says Pharaoh, I will not give you straw, Go and get yourselves straw, wherever you can find it, but your work will not be reduced in the least. So the people were scattered throughout all the land of Egypt to gather stubble for straw. The taskmasters were urgent, saying, Complete your work, your daily task, each day as when there was straw. And the foremen of the people of Israel, whom Pharaoh's taskmasters had set over them, were beaten and were asked, Why have you not done all your task of making bricks today and yesterday as in the past? Then the foreman of the people of Israel came and cried to Pharaoh, Why do you treat your servants like this? No straw is given to your servants, yet they say to us, Make bricks, and behold, your servants are beaten, but the fault is in your own people. But he said, You are idle. You are idle. That is why you say, Let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. Go now and work. No straw will be given you, but you must still deliver the same number of bricks." The foremen of the people of Israel saw that they were in trouble when they said, You shall by no means reduce the number of your bricks, your daily task each day. They met Moses and Aaron who were waiting for them as they came out from Pharaoh, and they said to them, The Lord look on you and judge, because you have made a stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants, and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. This is the word of the Lord. So we took a bit of a left turn here. This is unexpected. I think... If you were writing the movie, Moses is going to gather his team. They're going to go. They're going to win the championship. They're going to achieve their objectives. What's, what is this? What is this, this? The Lord said he was going to be with them, and now Pharaoh is rejecting the message given. And this is what we see in this first scene. The Lord's message is rejected. And it's Pharaoh that starts this rejecting somewhat aggressively. He scoffs at the Lord. And at the very least, diplomatically, there's this large group of slaves that live within his kingdom. Egypt is a land of many gods. The political, cultural climate at the time is there's a pantheon of gods in Egypt and elsewhere. It would be considered at least somewhat of a diplomatic nicety to say, oh, yes, your God and my God, and let's, you know, you have a God, I have a God. There should be some some kind of diplomatic respect paid to the, the reality that the Hebrews have a different God, hold to a different religion than Egypt. But he doesn't do that. He rejects the Lord and any request from him immediately. 
And this is not, this question that Pharaoh asks, who is the Lord? This is not the question of a doubter. It's a, if you turn your head sideways, it's an inverse of the question that Moses, Moses asked last week, which was, what is your name? Because the people aren't going to believe me. Let me tell them about you. You have to give me your name. It's not that. It's a scoffing. This is, this is coming from a rebel who denies any authority that the God of the Hebrews has. See, Pharaoh is opposing God. And this is the central conflict of the Exodus. You might think, okay, it's Moses versus Pharaoh, or the Israelites against the Egyptians. It's not that at all. It's Pharaoh versus God. And what are they arguing about? They're arguing about whom shall Israel serve? Are they going to serve me, Pharaoh, or are they going to serve the Lord? And Pharaoh is clear what he thinks. They're going to serve me. They're here for me. My glory, my power, my honor, not any Hebrew God that I have no respect for. You see, he, he doesn't believe that God has the authority over his people. God doesn't have the authority to free the slaves. Only I do. These are my slaves, and I won't free them. And more than that, he starts to oppress violently. He demands more intense labor. He has the foreman beaten. He ups the oppression. He tells lies about the Israelites, saying that they're lazy. He positions Moses as a bad seed who's leading them astray. It's more labor, less resources, more oppression, lies in service of his own power, his own glory. And the foremen are beaten when they can't make the impossible happen. Do the same thing you were doing yesterday, but with, like, way less. It's impossible. It's a standard they can't reach. And so what's the Israelites' reaction here? What's the foreman's reaction? They cry out. But they don't cry out to God. They cry out to Pharaoh. See this in verses 15 through 21. I'll read a section. Then the foreman of the people of Israel came and cried to Pharaoh, Why do you treat your servants like this? No straw is given to your servants, yet they say to us, Make bricks. And behold, your servants are beaten. But the fault is in your own people. You see, they're coming to Pharaoh and they're saying, Hey, we're not, be giving, we're not given straw, and yet you expect the same amount of work from us. Maybe there's been a mistake. Your, your, your taskmasters, they're not giving us the straw that we need. It's their fault. Beat them. Don't beat us. What are you doing? This isn't fair. This isn't right. This isn't just. But Pharaoh responds with harshness, more harshness on top of harshness. There's no help found with Pharaoh. In fact, he gives recriminations. You are idle. You are idle. It's like a child stopping up his ears and repeating something. You are idle. And he magnifies their burdens. They came to him for help. They said, this isn't fair. Relieve our burdens. We're being beaten. It's not our fault. And his response is to reject that argument and then to blame shift to Moses. The text says, this is why you say you want to make a sacrifice, because you're idle. He's basically saying, this Moses that came and talked to me, he's trying to make you lazy. He's trying to take you away from me. He's, divide, he's created this problem for you. And now you have more problems, because you're mine. And so this is when the foremen see that they are in trouble. But it doesn't drive them to the Lord. It drives them to grumble. Drives them to reject the Lord's care for them. They turn against Moses. This is your fault. You made us stink in the eyes of Pharaoh. 
And so the blame is going around, right? Pharaoh is blaming Moses and blaming the people. The people are blaming the taskmasters for not giving them straw and then blaming Moses. There's blame after blame after blame. And the Israelites start to grumble. They start to have bitterness. They turn on Moses, who just showed them miraculous signs, and they said they were all for. But they've hit this obstacle, and they've turned on him. And so as we think about this text and what lessons we can learn from them, we can learn quite a bit on what, what not to do, but also things to remember in the midst of difficulty. So one, God's presence does not guarantee instant results. There's many a ministry where people have labored faithfully, and the results that they want or desire or prayed for don't happen not instantaneously and perhaps not ever. Think of the prophet Jeremiah who went to prophesy to the nation of Israel for his entire life. And did they listen? No, they did not. See, God's presence does not guarantee instant results. So we, we need to be patient. We need to rest in his plan and not our plan. Second, we have to know that appeals to false gods and evil political powers, that there's not ultimate hope there. Framed another way, we need to know that hope begins with the Lord, not with political kingdom, not with men who set themselves up as false gods. See, the Israelites turn to Pharaoh and say, help us, this isn't fair. They even mirror, the Pharaoh's response to them mirrors what the Lord says earlier. Thus says Pharaoh, right? This is, this is a key to us to, as we read this to say, yeah, Pharaoh is setting himself up as a false god to the Israelites. Indeed, Pharaoh's thought of himself as divine. And so they turn to this political power, to this false god, but it does them no good. And so the Israelites start to grumble. So the third thing I think we can learn is that grumbling reveals a lack of faith. You see, the Israelites heard the plan they, were, they saw the signs, they were ready to go, but they hit this opposition and they begin to grumble. They turn on Moses. And this grumbling reveals a lack of faith. Now, if I'm sitting in the pew, if I'm in your position, I say to myself, well, wait a minute. Ben, these people have been enslaved, they've been oppressed, they've been given hope and it's been snatched away. Like, of course they're grumbling. How can you, how can you blame them for that? What are we supposed to do if not grumble when things go bad? Well, the proper answer to, to that pain is not to grumble, not to turn bitter, not to reject the Lord's uh, sovereignty over our life, but rather it's to lament. Now, what's the difference? Grumbling is something that we turn inward, that we hold onto like a root of bitterness, or horizontally with the people around us and say, look, what, look how the Lord has stuck it to me. What is he doing? He doesn't know. But lament is rather a complaint that is turned upwards to God that turns into trust. You see, we're to take our complaints to the Lord first. This doesn't mean that we don't petition kings or presidents or mayors or anything else. But the first stop for us in our suffering is vertically with the Lord. And how do we lament? How do we cry out to the Lord in the midst of our suffering in the midst of our loss, in the midst of our oppression, what do we do? Well, the Bible does not leave us ignorant. The Psalms are replete with lament. 
Just give one example. Psalm 13, it begins like this, verse 1. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? That's the complaint. Which the psalmist turns vertically and says, Lord, how long will you forget me? How long will you not care about me? How long will you leave me in the pit? How long? But verse 5 and 6 show how, what he turns that complaint into. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. You see, that complaint has turned to a trust and reliance on God's promises to him. If you're here on Wednesday nights, we sing a song comprised of those very words to remind us that we can trust in the Lord. So don't grumble, lament in your loss and in your suffering. I think the Israelites show us also that we need to listen to the word of God. Don't be like them in the fact of rejecting his word as soon as things get rough. God does what he says he's going to do. He keeps his promises, and he has promised to deliver the Israelites and how quickly they forget, how quickly they doubt, with just a little bit of resistance. 1 John 4, 6 says it this way, We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Meaning, if something comes from God's word, if it comes from the scriptures, we have to listen to it. That's the task for the people of God. So we have a twist, we have a we have a plot twist, if you will, a swerve, a left turn, whatever you want to call it. This was supposed to be, okay, we ride into Pharaoh's throne room, and he says, okay, you're free to go. That's what everyone was expecting, but the Lord's message is rejected. It's rejected, first by Pharaoh, and then down into the Israelites. And how does God respond? He responds by reminding us of who he is and what his promises are. The Lord reminds us of who he is and what his promises are. We see this in chapter 5, 22 through 6, 25. We'll read some of it, not all of it. Then Moses turned to the Lord and said, O Lord, why have you done this evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. But the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand he will send them out, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of his land. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. He's reminding him of who he is. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Say, therefore, to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will deliver you from slavery to them. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. 
Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. So the Lord said to Moses, Go in, tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But Moses said to the Lord, Behold, the people of Israel have not listened to me. How then shall Pharaoh listen to me? For I am of uncircumcised lips. But the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron and gave them a charge about the people of Israel and about Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, to bring the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt. So the Lord is reminding Moses of who he is and the promises that he's made. But nobody really wants to hear it. The Lord remains consistent, saying he has heard, he knows, he has made promises to redeem, and he will do it. I am the Lord. But Moses says, this isn't going to work. The people of Israel don't believe me. Pharaoh's definitely not going to believe me. Everyone's looking for somebody to blame. See, Pharaoh's blaming Moses. The Israelites are blaming Moses. They're all blaming each other. Everyone's to blame. Moses is blaming God. Why'd you even bring me here? This isn't working. You haven't delivered me. Why am I here? And the Lord's response is not to change strategies, to switch it up, throw us a bone and be like, okay, I hear you. Let me adjust. No, the Lord is consistent. He simply reminds us of who he is. This is what he reminds us of. I am the Lord. I appeared to your forefathers and made them a promise. I have heard the groaning of the Israelites, and I remember my promise. I am the Lord. You see, it, doesn't, it might not happen on your timetable, Moses, Israelites, but because I said it, it will happen. I remember my promise. I have to be consistent with myself because I am God. And so Moses, tell the Israelites what I promised to do. Tell them what I told you. Tell them that I am the Lord and what I've promised to do, that I've promised to deliver them. So Moses, despite being a little mopey, does obey. He goes to the Israelites and delivers this message, but this time they aren't so keen to listen. The text says that Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. And then Moses is then further dismayed because Israel won't listen. If they won't listen, what chance is there that Pharaoh is listening? But yet the Lord still doesn't waver. He remains consistent because he knows who he is and what he's going to do. And the call to us is to trust him to do the things he says he's going to do. Now we get to something a little odd. We get to a genealogy, which I'm not going to read. But it's here, and it seems oddly placed. We're in the middle of a story, a historical narrative about what's going on. Why is there a genealogy here? Well, the answer is, is I think the genealogy is doing exactly what God is doing here. It's reminding us as readers and the Israelites of who the Lord is and what he's done. Because the genealogy stretches back to the patriarchs, talks about these are the people I made the promise to, goes up to Aaron, but then goes two generations into the future with Phineas. So the end is already written. You see, the genealogy demonstrates the reality that God knows the past and he knows the future and what he wills is going to happen. And so when this, when this book is written, 
that genealogy is put there as a testament to what the Lord is saying. I am the Lord, and what I promise is going to happen. See, Phineas is proof of that. So for us, as we consider what the Lord is saying, how do we apply? It's somewhat simple. We need to remember who the Lord is. We're called to remember who God is and what he's done. As I said before, the Lord's timing is not our timing. For the people of God, things often get worse before they get better. Think of Christ telling the apostles that he's going to die. And Peter says, no way. Far be it from you, Lord. You're not going to die. Don't say such a thing. That's ridiculous. And how does the Lord respond? He rebukes him. Think of Christ riding into Jerusalem on a donkey as people throw down coats saying, Hosanna, adoring crowds, welcoming him in. Some of those same people, those same crowds, days later, calling for his crucifixion and to free Barabbas. Think of Christ being handed over to religious leaders, being beaten and mocked and crucified between criminals. Things get incredibly dark, both figuratively and literally, as the clouds cover the sky and darkness is in Jerusalem as the Son of God is murdered on a tree. But with the Lord, things do not stay that way. Christ rises again from the dead, offering rescue to all those who turn from their sins and place their faith in Christ to save them. And this story, this this light in the midst of darkness, this hope in the midst of struggle, continues throughout the history of the early church and the entire church. In Acts, think of persecutions that come. Stephen is stoned. People are murdered. Christians flee all over the known world. And what happens? They make disciples. They start churches. They preach the gospel. Even when it's dark, it can never overwhelm the light and the hope of Christ. Or even more recently, think of missionaries in our own time. Famously, Jim Elliott went to Ecuador to preach to the natives there. And he's murdered quickly. It looks dark. It looks like the gospel has been snuffed out. But missionaries continued to go to that same place to preach the same gospel and light shone through. Countless numbers of those people came to Christ, even some of those who murdered Jim Elliott. This is what the Lord does. He gives hope in the midst of darkness. The entire Old Testament is a series of promises made. Here we're seeing promises made about moving Israel out of slavery and into the promised land, and that promise is kept. But the whole Old Testament is a bunch of promises made that are fulfilled in the New Testament, ultimately in Christ. Promises made, promises kept. That is what God does. And so when things don't go as we expect, we have to remember the Lord. He will do what he says he's going to do. But to remember the Lord, you have to know him. So in the midst of struggle and suffering in this world, in the midst of darkness that you can't overcome, know that Christ loved you enough to die for you. And he rose again after three days. The call to remember Christ has to be preceded by knowing him. And so if you don't know him, turn to him. 
because he is our only hope in the midst of a dark and difficult world. Turn to Christ, repent from your sins, put your faith and trust in him. So the Lord reminds us of who he is and the promises he's made. But does he change his approach? I've already said he doesn't. He does not. He he simply repeats his mission to Moses. He does not change because he knows the end. And so in the last section of our text, we see that the Lord repeats his mission to his people. The Lord repeats his mission to his people. Chapter 6, verses 26 through 7-7. On the day when the Lord spoke to Moses in the land of Egypt, the Lord said to Moses, I am the Lord. Tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, all that I say to you. But Moses said to the Lord, Behold, I am I am of uncircumcised lips. How will Pharaoh listen to me? And the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like a god to Pharaoh. Your brother Aaron shall be his prophet. You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. Moses and Aaron did so. They did just as the Lord commanded them. Now Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 years old when they spoke to the Lord. The Lord simply repeats his mission. Go to Pharaoh and tell him what I just told you. Surely Moses is thinking, well, I just, I just did that. That didn't, that didn't work. Moses is again expressing his doubts. I'm an unworthy sinner. This didn't work last time. I already told you I can't speak very well. Like, come on. But this is the lesson Moses needs to learn over and over and over again. He's not the point. It's not upon his abilities that God's mission rises or falls, fails or succeeds. That's not Moses' job. Moses' job is to be faithful in obedience. But the Lord responds to his concerns. He says, Pharaoh will never again be dismissive of you like he just was. In fact, you will be like God to him. Now, this doesn't mean that Moses is going to be set up as some false deity. Rather, it means a certain amount of authority will be on Moses, and Pharaoh will respect it. You see, Moses is going to spend the next several chapters talking to Pharaoh, walking into his throne room and saying, let God's people go, or this horrible thing is going to happen. And again and again and again, as we'll get to in the plagues, this is what happens. But Pharaoh doesn't touch him. He rages, he begs, he gives false repentance, he tries to make deals with Moses, but he never dismisses Moses again as a nobody, as somebody with no authority. It's because the Lord did that. Then the Lord tells Moses again that he will act with a mighty hand to bring Israel out of slavery. He will bring rescue to the Israelites and judgment to the Egyptians. So we've talked a lot about how the Lord does what he says he's going to do, but there's an interesting secondary question here. Why? Why? Why bring judgment to the Egyptians and rescue Israel? And the Lord tells us that the world would know him. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. 
and you will go into the wilderness, and I will be your God, and you will be my people, and you will know that I am the Lord. You see, all of this that God is doing is so that the world will know him, the Egyptians and the Israelites. The Lord will make himself known to the world, everyone, even to his enemies. Romans 14, 9 through 12 says, For to this end Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. Why do you pass judgment on your brother, or why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. You see, God's purpose is God's glory. This is why he made man. As many a catechism has said, if you're familiar with several Protestant catechisms, it says, what is the whole purpose of man? To, to glorify God and enjoy him forever. This is why he does what he does. This is why he sent Christ to rescue a people for himself, for his glory and for our good. This is what we're designed for. This is what we're made for. If you're wondering what your purpose in life is, here it is, to glorify God. That's why he made you. And if you do that, you have joy forevermore at his side. You see, when you do what you were designed to do, it results in satisfaction, contentment, joy, and hope in the midst of suffering and storm. John Piper put it this way, we weren't meant to be somebody, we were meant to know somebody. God is redeeming a people for himself to know him for all time. And so how do we apply some, a reality like that? How do, we, how do we apply the fact that God is doing these things for his glory? Well, first, we have to glorify God by knowing him. So if you don't know him, know him. And if you do, know more about him. Pursue him in the midst of reading the scriptures, in the community, in prayer, with the saints. Know him. Glorify God by living for him. Do all things unto God and not for man. Whether you apply yourself at school or at work or even in retirement, think of how you can redeem the time to make much of God. And finally, we have to glorify God by telling people about him, by delivering his message. All three of these things, knowing him, living for him, telling people about him, are going to look different at different times in your life and different seasons. For someone who's retired, you might have more time to leisurely spend in the scriptures and prayer. Use that time to pray. We need it. The church needs it. Use that time to invest in people who are younger than you that don't know the Lord that you, like you do. If you're a hassled mom and you've got young kids who are running around, tearing things apart, being all sorts of crazy, the way you know the Lord, the way you pursue him might look different. You might have to pray for 10 minutes in the car or 15 minutes before bedtime. That's okay. It's going to look different in different seasons. Our evangelism, telling people about him, is going to look different depending on where we are, what role we have as boss, employee, child, parent. You're going to have, if you're a younger person who's still in school, if you're a kid, you're going to have access to kids, other kids, that you'll never have again. You spend every day with a group of people. You have a chance to glorify God by telling them about him. So we have to glorify God in all these ways. Because that's what God made us to do. I'll simply conclude with this. No matter how unexpected God's timing is, his purposes can never be thwarted. Moses and the Israelites were flying high. They wanted the happy ending to their movie. 
but it unfolds in a way that they don't expect. And isn't that how it happens for us so often? We think, we scheme, we plot, we plan, we say, all right, I'm going to do this thing, and then this thing's going to happen, and then I'll do this, and then I'll get the thing that I want, and then it'll all be great. We can't help it. It's the way that we're wired. We think about the future. We think about how we can get from point A to point B. There's a million books you can buy about five-year plans, 10-year plans. This is just like us. We have expectations. And then it all goes completely haywire. Cliché is that man plans and God laughs, right? So what do we do when things go haywire? What do we do when our plans fall apart, when life doesn't look the way that we want to do? We remember who God is. Remember the promises he's made to us. and We rest in that. Rest in the reality that God's purposes can't be stopped. See, here Pharaoh rejects the Lord's message. Don't do that. And realize the reality of the truth, that his message will go forth, that his promises will be kept. We have to trust in those and pursue his mission. And there's great freedom here, right? Like, we can give our burdens to Christ. It doesn't rely on us. Give those burdens to Christ. He is gentle and lowly in heart. See, God, Christ, when he sees us in our sin, he's not revolted. He doesn't turn away. He enters in. He comes near. He becomes a person in flesh, a baby in a manger who lives a life and dies on a cross. We're getting a foretaste of that here. When God sees the plight of the Israelites, he doesn't stay far. He comes near. I see. I hear. I will deliver. This is the God of the universe who loves you enough to send his son. Rest in that. Rest in the reality of his promise keeping. Because even when life goes left, right, up, down, all around, in ways that perplex and mystify and hurt, God keeps his promises. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do praise you as a God who keeps his word, who loves us enough to rescue us. We do pray that we would rely on that reality as we go from this place, that we would be reminded of that in our day-to-day life, that we would share the truth of who you are and what you've done with others, just as you called Moses to do with the Egyptians. Help us remember you are who you say you are. Pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.